Hello guys and a warm welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the North Wales-based one-person true crime show that looks for and recounts a selection of the usually more obscure, unfamiliar and often long-forgotten cases from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these cases is myself, Paul, the host and creator of the show. It's as wonderful as ever having you guys joining me here today, which I thank you very much for, and I hope that as you hear the episode, each of you is good and well. So I can imagine some of you guys are thinking, two weeks on the banks, what's going on here? But yeah, I'm back once again with a brand new episode of the show. I told you, I'm all better and hopefully I'm on a roll now. Thanks very much for all the messages of goodwill that I've received from you guys whilst I've been under the weather, which means a lot. And equally, thanks very much for the feedback that I've received concerning the previous episode of The Enthusiast, where we looked at the absolutely despicable crime of soldier Andrew Walker. I gather that you guys found it an interesting tale, and I certainly did while I was researching it, and it's a very memorable one as well, I thought. Welcomes and thanks this week also go out to the very appreciated returning and new Patreon supporters of the show. I'm talking Kelly Weddish, Leanne Morrison, Tracy Crocker, Dawn Lawrence, Jackie Burton, Alana JC, Dizzy DJ, Melissa Lawrence and Nikki Preston and Natalie Mills who have both kindly edited their pledges. Thank you so much guys. I hope that you've all had a chance to catch up with the bonus episodes that you get as a supporter. Some of you have other stuff of course. But I especially hope that you've had the chance to listen to this month's bonus Patreon episode, Retribution. Now the consensus has been good so far from other supporters and I have to say personally that it's one of the most memorable cases that I've done for the show to date. You can hear it and others for yourselves, guys, by becoming a Patreon supporter of the show. It's very easy if you use the link in the episode show notes, and it's very reasonable to become one. In fact, and this is quite strange, but I have seen it, it costs less each month than it does to buy a sex toy from Poundland. And they really, really do sell those yet. It's a very lucky lady who's getting one of those in her stocking this year, eh? And to be honest, the bonus episodes and all they contain will still probably amount to less untold misery than getting one of those would. A Poundland bullet. Who says romance is dead, eh? So just before we get on to this week's episode, I also have a short word from this week's show sponsors, HelloFresh. As the UK's leading recipe box service, HelloFresh delivered to your door a varied and unique box containing an assortment of step-by-step recipes and the perfect portion of fresh ingredients to make each recipe of your choosing. You've got a choice from 19 recipes each week that you can select. You've got ones that can be done in 20 minutes or less, ones that the family will all love, recipes from around the world, there are even lower calorie based ones for those who are watching their weight. And thanks to the pre portioning of ingredients, it's just right and you're not wasting a thing. It saves you time trying to plan fresher meals before falling back into the cooking rut of the five or six same weekly recipes that the average household has. With HelloFresh, you've got a variety of family friendly dishes that kids and adults alike will all surely love which means a shop-free, plan-free, stress-free meal. And because each meal is literally step-by-step, you've got no worries about your meal turning out great. Now, I requested and kindly had a HelloFresh classic box sent to me, and contained within, I really did get everything I needed for the recipes in the box. 
the recipes and ingredients I got, and I like an eclectic taste of worldwide foods, plus I'm not afraid to have a bash at something new. They covered India, Spain, and of course, your classic British dish. Now I've had a go at each, and I have to say, a Kardashian could follow the recipes they're so simple, with each perfectly portioned and lovely. HelloFresh subscriptions are also flexible, so you're not held to a minimum term, and you can drama-free change your box size, even your delivery address, to suit your needs. And as show sponsors this week, HelloFresh are offering listeners the total of £60 of four boxes like this. You simply head over to www.hellofresh.co.uk, you choose your box, you choose your suited delivery slot, and then you add your favourite recipes from the list. That's it. Then when you check out, simply enter the code TRUECRIME to get your £60 off the cost of four boxes. Boom, before you know it, with HelloFresh you'll discover the easy way to delicious meals you'd never have considered from scratch. So, to the case this week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast then. Now you may notice a bit of a juxtaposition with the show's sponsors this week. It wasn't planned and it was only something that occurred to me when I was midway through writing the episode. I do know slightly in advance if I've got a show sponsor of course, and whilst advertising does benefit the show, they in no way dictate the content or any running order. But I'm sure the case this week will make you think a bit if I've chosen this deliberately and I haven't done it on purpose, I promise. The case featured this week is one that I'm sure will stick with people, it may anger some, and it should certainly shock people. The entire tale takes place over a number of years from the early 1990s onwards in London. It's almost unbelievable, and it's a real tale of gothic horror this one is, I'm telling you. I was telling my mum about it earlier on, and her hands went across her ears, bless her. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or upsetting. And further this week, there is a reference within the episode to a racial slur, placed in only because it's an integral part of the tale, so listener discretion is advised as always. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as this week we look back at a case I've entitled The Time Bomb. By 1993, the Sheth family had, over the previous 14 years, established a successful business in London's fashionable Chelsea area, owning and running a thriving clothing shop, Omkar Clothing, on Chelsea's King's Road. Having come over to the UK from India in the mid-1960s, Michael and Rashinda Sheth had settled in the Chelsea area with the intentions of starting both a family and a business. Now the former of these came when a daughter, Nisha, was born to the couple in 1972 and through the remainder of the 1970s, the Sheths juggled raising their young family and establishing and managing a clothing business. By 1979, they'd opened a shop on King's Road, Omkar Clothing, which the family lived above and where they often put in 15-hour days to make the store a success. Alongside this busy existence, Two years later, the Sheth family expanded with the arrival of a son, Bobby, just if there didn't seem enough for them to do. Although the Sheth family had a hard work and everybody muck in to help ethic, toddlers just can't be left by themselves, can they? Unless you're the McCanns, of course. And following Bobby's birth, with Rashinda caring for his son and Nisha in school, 
the family began to take on other staff to help out the daily running of the shop. As with everywhere, there was a large turnover of staff over the years, but what remained consistent was that for everyone who worked for them, the kind-hearted Sheth family treated each of their employees almost as an extended member of their family. As she went through secondary school, for pocket money Nisha would help out at her parents' shop on weekends and school holidays, even evenings depending upon how late they stayed open, a practice that continued long after she'd left school and even when she went to university. By the time she was 21, Nisha was a beautiful, highly intelligent young woman and was planning to continue her studies as a postgraduate, although what she wanted to do with her life she wasn't quite sure of yet. Nisha was pondering what to do following her further studies as, assisted by her 12-year-old brother Bobby, she prepared to shut up Omkar clothing at almost 7pm on the evening of Friday the 19th of March 1993. The mother and father were upstairs in the family home and as Nisha moved from around the counter to bring the shop shutters down, a familiar figure to Nisha and Bobby entered the shop. Without speaking a word, the man dressed in dark jeans, a brown leather jacket and baseball cap, removed a claw hammer from his pocket and struck Nisha as hard as he could across the head with it. Bobby immediately bravely attempted to defend his sister, receiving two incapacitating blows across the head for doing so, before the attacker turned his attentions once again upon Nisha. After striking her several more maniacal blows, the man ran out of the shop and down towards Chelsea Manor Street past a queue of people who were waiting for a bus outside the shop. Startled by the man's rapid flight, a couple of people entered Omkar clothing and discovered the terribly injured Nisha and Bobby lying unconscious on the floor. Police and emergency services were immediately summoned and as Nisha and Bobby were rushed to nearby Charing Cross Hospital accompanied by their distraught father, the shop was sealed off as a crime scene. Police were initially baffled by the motive. Was this an attempted robbery gone wrong, or a jealous ex-boyfriend or disgruntled suitor of Nisha's? Whilst they were pondering this, however, they were rapidly to discover the culprit. Bobby Sheth had been lucky. Although his head wounds were grave, they were ultimately non-threatening, and following stitches and in being kept in for observation, only a short time later he was able to speak to police and immediately identify the man responsible for the attack. Nisha, however, was a different story. She sadly died in hospital later that evening, the blows to her head inflicted with such force that they ensured she never woke up. They prompted Detective Superintendent Clive Ritchie, the senior investigating officer, to comment, I have seldom seen injuries this bad. As the devastated Sheths were at the bedsides of their children in Charing Cross Hospital, however, at the same time a few miles across the city, in East London's borough of Forest Gate, onlookers were drawn to the spectacle of a man hanging precariously from a third-floor balcony of a block of flats on Derby Street. Clearly disturbed, and later found to be high on cannabis, the man suddenly flung himself from the balcony in a perceived suicide attempt, falling some 35 feet to the concrete below. Suicide was unsuccessful, but he did break both of his ankles upon impact. As the man was rushed to hospital and treated for his injuries, 
He was soon joined at his hospital bed by police, who had just been to the same block, looking for the very same man. It was the killer that Bobby had identified. He was placed under arrest in hospital, and as soon as was able, the man was charged with the murder of Nisha Sheth, which he freely admitted to. The arrested man was Peter Bryan, a 24-year-old former employee of the Sheths, who until only a few weeks before had worked at Omkar Clothing and who knew Nisha and Bobby well. The Sheths had employed Bryan in the later months of 1992 and had liked him. He was a hard worker and developed a reputation as being a bit of a joker, particularly targeting Nisha to be the butt of his jokes whenever she was in the shop. Now it's reported that Bryan had strong feelings for Nisha and constantly pestered her to go out with him, becoming almost obsessive over her and unwavering even when she continually politely laughed off or rejected his advances. However, Brian was dismissed from Omkar clothing at the beginning of 1993, with conflicting accounts as for what. On one hand it's reported that Brian was caught stealing clothes or money from the shop, whilst another claims the reason to be over fierce and repeated arguments over non-payment of wages that Brian claimed were owed to him. Perhaps Nisha had even told her parents about the advances she was getting from Brian, and this had caused relations between the Sheths and Brian to sour. Either way, he was fired by the Sheths, and less than two months later, he took a bloody revenge for his dismissal, getting high on cannabis and going out to buy a claw hammer, following which he'd headed to Omkar clothing with. After his bloody rampage, he unsuccessfully attempted to take his own life before being admitted to hospital and arrested when he was identified by Bobby Sheth. Brian immediately admitted the attacks and murder, but offered no explanation for what he'd done whatsoever. So, what happened here then? Although there's very little available for research concerning his early life, the story of Peter Brian begins in the Caribbean island of Barbados, where his parents hailed from, and where they left following the end of the Second World War to begin a new and more prosperous life, starting a family in Britain. Quiet, God-fearing people. When they came over to the UK, they soon settled into the East London suburb of Forest Gate, and they soon learned how shite Telly was over here, as they went on to have seven children, the last born of which was Peter, who came into the world on the 4th of October 1969. He went on to do his schooling in Forest Gate and Cannon Town, attending Shaftesbury Junior and Trinity Secondary respectively, and by and large was an unremarkable child throughout. Brian left school in the mid-1980s and found employment first on a market clothing stall for a period of time, before moving on to work with London's homeless. Nothing remarkable there, is it? But the Brian family had, like so many before and since them, a tragic established history of mental illness within the family. It had affected a number of Peter's relatives beforehand, including one of Peter's elder brothers, and then it was to affect Peter himself. The first signs that there may be issues, shall we say, with Peter, came in 1987, by which time he'd left home and was living in the Flying Angel in Custom House, a former seamen's mission and college which was converted to flats in the 1980s. Perhaps taking the name of the building literally and wanting to test the theory out, police were contacted and attended the scene 
when Brian attempted to throw one of the other residents out of a sixth floor window, getting a deep gash to his head during the struggle, in which time its intended victim escaped. Reportedly, the initial attack on the resident by Brian was totally unprovoked, and although both men were questioned by police, no action was taken against either. Now that's some row that, isn't it, if you want to defenestrate someone because of it, eh? Defenestrate, I had to get that word in. What a great word, a lot. But there's no report of Brian coming to the attention of police or local health authorities for the next few years following this incident. There's pretty much nothing available to learn about him. No relationships, friendships, further employment, nothing of note until he was arrested late on the evening of Friday the 19th of March 1993 for the horrific, brutal murder of Nisha Sheth. Charged with murder and remanded to London's Brixton prison to await trial, eight months after the horrific crime, the still-greathing Sheth family received a letter from Peter Bryan. An extract of it is as follows. I am very, very, very sorry. I would have liked to be part of your family, but due to this situation, this does not look possible. Telling Tanisha that I love her over and over again just does not work. Now, I doubt the Sheth family thought it was possible as well, Peter Bryan. Can you believe that? Bryan even had the gall to then nonchalantly ask Nisha's father to send him some clothes into prison, continuing, If you'd be so kind to send my clothes to Her Majesty's Prison Brixton, I would be very, very, very happy. I'll see Nisha again. No one can tell me to keep away. Good luck. Now can you even begin to imagine what receiving such a strange letter must have done to the still devastated Sheth family, who are not only struggling to come to terms with the loss of their daughter, but also to accept that her killer was someone they'd once liked and trusted. A year after Nisha's murder, Michael Sheth told the Kensington Post newspaper just how broken the Sheth family still was. The report describes how seven large photographs of Nisha at various stages of her life adorned the family living room and all of her old toys, school reports and treasured possessions were still kept lovingly by her family who were finding it too painful to let Nisha go. Michael said, Time doesn't heal, it just stopped that day. The numbness blows you to pieces. By the time Michael gave this interview, Peter Bryan had appeared for trial where he pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. This was accepted by the Crown, as Brian had been examined by mental health professionals whilst he was on remand, and who collectively had arrived at the diagnosis of him being schizophrenic, classed as being highly dangerous, high profile and an immediate risk. Brian was sectioned under the Mental Health Act 1983 and sent without limit of time to one of England's three major secure hospitals, Rampton Hospital in Nottinghamshire. And for several years, Peter Bryan was to remain in secure care at Rampton without incident. Whenever asked by health professionals, Bryan's description of his offence was that he'd been owed money by Michael Sheth, who'd borrowed the sum from Bryan, who'd returned to the shop several times unsuccessfully for repayment. Brian said that on about the fourth occasion that he'd asked for it back, Nisha, who was then aged 21, had told him he should leave and had pushed him. Turned on me, 
was how he described it. He further described how this meant my head went. I was not all there. He'd then bought and taken a claw hammer to the shop, partly because he was paranoid and partly because he wanted to frighten Michael Sheff. Finding Nisha and her brother there, he'd hit Nisha on the head about six times with a claw hammer and Bobby twice. He claimed he'd then walked out of the shop and went back to the block of flats where he lived. He said he'd then jumped off a wall, which he told health professionals was about 90 feet high, resulting in him breaking both ankles and being admitted to hospital. He admitted killing Nisha, but thought he'd been severely provoked into doing what he'd done. The only remorse he ever reportedly expressed, however, was in the strange note that he sent to the Sheth family whilst he was on remand. Whilst at Rampton, over the years, Brian reportedly became a model patient, participating in several treatment programmes and workshops, and during this period, seemed to not only recognise the requirement for him to be there, but to almost appreciate being so, knowing he was in the best place to help him. Reports on his character and demeanour over time became increasingly favourable, commenting on his ability to mix with others and the perceived improvements on his initial diagnosis and classification as a dangerous patient. With doctors and nurses alike all thinking that Brian was a shining example of a patient responding to treatment, within seven years of being at Rampton, in the summer of 2001, Brian was moved to the more relaxed, medium security environment of the John Howard Centre, a forensic psychiatric services in Homerton in East London, where from here he was allowed a more relaxed regime, including escorted home visits. Now for a move to such a facility, patients who had committed the kind of crime that Peter Bryan had committed have to be showing serious signs of response to treatment over a substantial period of time, and the expected stay of a patient at a lesser secure facility such as this would be up to two years. But by early 2002, doctors at the John Howard Centre were so pleased with Brian's perceived progress, as they saw it, that he was deemed effectively cured, and a short time later, Brian convinced a mental health tribunal that he was safe to be reduced in category further still. The tribunal subsequently granted Brian a conditional discharge from the centre under long-term supervision, and he was housed in a forensic hostel the Riverside House Residential Care Home on the Seven Sisters Road in Hackney, from where he could come and go pretty much more or less as he pleased. He had his own room and front door key to the hostel, an outside cleaning job was even arranged for him, and he was assigned a key worker, a social worker named Roland Silcott. Now the key word to remember from the last part of this narrative describing Brian's hospitalisation is perceived, because... As we've only been going through 20 or 25 minutes or so of the episode here, as I'm sure you can guess if you don't already know the case, this recovery of Brian's was an absolute shamble of bollocks. Because far from being effectively cured, Peter Bryan was in fact just as much of a walking, talking, ticking time bomb and a danger as he'd been in 1993. As you'll soon find out. Over the next 18 months then, Peter Bryan was left largely to it, able to come and go from the hostel, and all the while doctors and his key worker became increasingly convinced that he was improving by the day, 
and adjusting well to life outside of a hospital. He had by this time been allowed to lower the dosage of his medication and even to self-medicate, and an examining psychiatrist who assessed him in November 2003 put forward the recommendation that Brian should be given his own unsupervised accommodation. His key worker, Roland Silcott, supported this view, having written a number of letters to the Home Office saying that Brian seemed to have made an effective recovery and no longer posed a threat to himself or society. And over this time, there were no reported incidents concerning him. Nothing that was until December 2003, when Brian was accused of indecently assaulting a 16-year-old girl that he'd befriended. Now, the extent of the alleged indecent assault isn't recorded. However, the phrase, blowing raspberries on his stomach, crops up in several accounts that I found whilst researching the episode. It isn't reported as to any charges being brought as a result, it isn't even reported if Brian was arrested as a result of this, or that this was even reported to police. What can be gathered, though, is that the girl was concerned enough about the incident to report it to members of her family, who reacted with fury to it. Other local residents then jumped on the bandwagon and got involved with them, and before you know it, there was almost a lynch mob baying for Peter Brian's blood. You know how these things go, we've seen it before, haven't we? Now the mental health authority did step in here and as it was deemed unsafe for Brian to remain as a resident at Riverside House, for his own protection he was admitted to the acute inpatient Topaz ward of Newham General Hospital in Plaistow. After being admitted here he reportedly had a series of confrontations with staff there, these are not expanded on in any further detail than this, but enough that initial reports upon Brian were to class him as presenting a moderate risk of violence. However, as quick as this was written, it was seemingly dismissed, because he was soon to appear normal again. He was, by all accounts from here onwards, charming and courteous, likeable even, and successive reports upon him from here describe him as being stable and compliant. Brian stayed here at Newham into the early part of 2004, and by the morning of 17th of February, had been transferred onto an open psychiatric ward, where that day he sat in with staff who were holding a review meeting about his future. Brian was described as being attentive throughout this meeting, and one account even describes him as being calm and jovial. But the crux of the meeting is that it was agreed here that Brian had made such progress that he could become an informal patient, which meant that although he could not at the time be officially discharged, he was able to leave the hospital as often as he liked because, I quote, there were no concerns regarding his mental state and presentation. Now this isn't the Happy Ever After podcast, is it? And you know that if this tale is on the enthusiast, then something is going to go absolutely tits up here, isn't it? It took just mere hours after this decision. Later that afternoon, using his newfound informal patient status, Peter Bryan walked out of Newham Hospital and made his way four miles across the city, finding himself in the East London district of Stratford. Once here, he entered a branch of the builder's merchant's juicens and spending a few moments inside, eventually chose and purchased three items. He then left here, 
and caught a bus four miles to a block of council flats named Manning House on the drive in Walthamstow, where a friend of Brian's, a 47-year-old unemployed loner named Brian Cherry, lived in the ground floor flat there. Brian Cherry answered the knock at his door and greeted his friend Peter warmly, inviting him inside and closing the door behind him. At around 7.15pm that evening, a friend of Brian Cherry's, 18-year-old Nicola Newman, had decided to call around and visit him. She let herself into the block, and just as she was about to open Brian Cherry's door, to which she had a key, noticed an overpowering smell of disinfectant. She let herself in, only to be rooted to the spot in what must have been a truly terrifying sight. Nicola was greeted by the disturbing sight of Peter Bryan, whom Nicola also knew, merging from the living room of Brian Cherry's flat, grinning insanely, naked to the waist, heavily bloodstained, and holding a seven-inch kitchen knife, he announced to Nicola, Brian is dead, you should go. He wasn't messing about either. Behind him, on the floor, Nicola could make out the naked, blood-covered body of Brian Cherry, or rather, what remained of him. She could see that his right arm lay at an impossible angle and distance from his body until she realised with horror that it had been severed. She later recalled, Brian went to shut the door, but I got there ahead of him and acted perfectly normal. I thought if I stayed any longer, I might be the next victim. I just said, see you later, Pete, and he smiled and shut the door after me. With remarkable calm, Nicola made her way out of the block and once a short distance down the street, immediately called police. Be honest, right? How fast would you have legged it from there if you'd seen that? It would proper have shit you up seeing that, wouldn't it? What a remarkable girl. Because nowhere near safe to be out of the security of a psychiatric hospital, let alone be an informal patient, the urges that Peter Bryan had so well hidden to convince doctors and authority figures alike that he was practically cured had that afternoon come to the surface. It was at this point in his life that Peter Bryan had decided to kill once again, and to this time, add what he believed was the ultimate taboo to his ghastly repertoire of crime. The following contains disturbing descriptions of crimes and events. Upon knocking on the door of the ground floor flat where Brian Cherry lived, Peter, I have to refer to him as Peter here because I don't want to cause any confusion, was admitted inside by his friend who was glad to see him. That was until when both were inside the living room, Peter removed from a carrier bag one of the items that he'd bought at Juson's only a short time before, a claw hammer, and launched a murderous attack on his friend. With the strength of a madman, quite an apt term of phrase there, Peter had struck his friend Brian Cherry with what were later deemed to be at least 24 powerful blows to the head with a hammer, killing him and leaving his skull shattered into pieces, his head almost unrecognisable. Reaching into the Juson's carrier bag, Peter now removed the other two items that he'd purchased that afternoon, a screwdriver and a Stanley knife, and now turned his attention back to the mangled corpse of the friend he'd just killed and if there hadn't already been horror enough, it was now about to get much, much worse. 
First, Peter stripped to the waist until he remained stood in just his already heavily blood-spattered jeans and trainers. Calmly and methodically, using the Stanley knife, he then set about scalping what was left of the head of Brian Cherry, and with that done, again using the Stanley knife and a set of kitchen knives, set about dismembering Brian's body. He severed Brian's left arm across the upper bicep and his right arm at a 70 degree angle before moving onto his left leg, which he severed just underneath the buttocks. By this time, the sitting room and kitchen of the flat were covered in his victim's blood and Peter had stopped part way through severing Brian's right leg. Now why can only be guessed at. Perhaps the urges he'd had to do that had sated by that point, or perhaps he was just physically tired, because as macabre as it is to think about it, I can imagine that it must be quite knackering bludgeoning someone to death and then dismembering them. But it was what Peter Bryan did next that shook even the most hardened police officers and led to a judge later calling him one of the most dangerous men in Britain. Police who attended the ground floor flat at about 7.40pm that evening following the terrified call from Nicola Newman at first for some reason believed they were heading to the scene of a serious assault but the first impressions that officers had when they arrived was that they had, I quote, stumbled on the scene of a horror movie with blood dripping from the walls and limbs lying around in one of the rooms. They were greeted by a calm Peter Bryan stood in the hallway, who admitted them to the flat and told officers that it had been a bit of a struggle, but the scene before them depicted something much more serious. Bloodstains covered several parts of the room, and on a chair near the door, a bloodstained bread knife lay. Alongside the tools that had been used to murder and dismember Brian Cherry, his bloodstained corpse lay in pieces on the living room rug his limbs scattered everywhere. An upturned plate also lay on the floor nearby to where Brian's dismembered torso and head lay. So if that scene wasn't horror enough, it was in the kitchen of the flat where the worst discovery was made. In the kitchen, on the hob, officers noticed a small amount of meat in a frying pan, which was next to an open tub of clover margarine. The meat, it transpired, was part of Brian Cherry's brain. More brain tissue and hair, matted with blood, was heaped on a plate next to a knife and fork on the draining board. Yep, Peter Bryan had removed, cooked and eaten his victim's brain. Peter Bryan freely admitted killing Brian Cherry and further claimed that he'd enjoyed the forbidden fruit of his victim's flesh. He then told police, I ate his brain with butter. It was really nice. I would have done someone else if you hadn't come along. I wanted their souls. Besides the part of his victim's brain that he'd fried and ate, Brian also claimed that he'd severed, cooked and eaten strips of his victim's arm and leg, which he claimed tasted like chicken. No words, eh? Asked what had made him eat the brain of Brian Cherry, Peter Bryan replied almost jokingly, it was because the Kentucky Fried Chicken Branch was closed at the time. It was definitely finger-licking good. 
Whilst Brian was arrested and taken to Walthamstow Police Station, the entire block was evacuated and sealed off, and a crime scene team moved in. Every single body part and piece of flesh lying about the living room of the flat had to be catalogued and bagged, and every splash and spray of blood about the place had to be recorded, which as you can imagine, must have been a hell of a sight and a hell of a job to do. Meanwhile, reports and gossip about the grisly murder and dismemberment had spread like wildfire through the local area, and with press picking up on this and looking for a story, police decided, quite surprisingly, to give rather more information than you'd expect at an arranged press conference. A police source confirmed here that a dismembered body had been found and a 34-year-old man arrested, but went into rather more detail than expected, telling those gathered, one real possibility is that the body was being cut up and prepared for a meal. The brain was being fried in a pan on the hob when officers raided the flat. There are aspects of the Mental Health Act which are being addressed. Cannibalism is a motive that cannot be overlooked at this time. Charged with the murder of Brian Cherry While in police custody in the early hours of 18th of February, Peter Bryan was assessed by a psychiatrist where he gave a rambling account of the reasons for the killing that were almost certainly untrue and perhaps an attempt by him to plead some kind of provocation. He reportedly claimed that he'd gone to Brian Cherry's flat to commit burglary because he was tired of telling people about his previous conviction for manslaughter. He said that Brian Cherry had opened the door and called him a coon and that this slur made him go berserk. He denied having a mental disorder and claimed to have just a temper. Some temper that. It doesn't explain why you cook and eat someone's brains though, does it? Peter Bryan was at first remanded for a short time to London's Pentonville prison and unbelievably not straight to a secure hospital. It's like no one in charge had ever seen the Silence of the Lambs. Whilst in Pentonville, he proved to be a disruptive inmate, assaulting staff on a number of occasions, affecting him a move to Belmarsh Prison, where he again proved to be further disruptive and increasingly disturbed. On the 12th of March 2004, officers searching his cell found bedsheets tied together in a manner that could have been used as a garrote or a noose. They also found a spoon hidden in a pillow, causing Brian's transfer to the prison's intensive care unit. In the days following this, Brian was reported to be agitated and confrontational, yet this was interspersed with periods where he presented no management problems whatsoever. Then, just over a week later, he set two fires in his cell, before the following day assaulting a prison officer whilst being escorted back from the showers. He was now deemed so dangerous that he was designated a five-officer unlock detail, and officers had shields on standby whenever Brian's cell door was opened. Placed in lockdown for yet another assault, as he was dancing around his cell, I quote, like a boxer in training, he told the consultant forensic psychiatrist based at Belmarsh that he wanted to hit or kill a member of staff and eat someone's nose. Brian was also at this time asked once again about the killing of Brian Cherry, and once again gave a different, confusing account. He claimed he'd been carrying a hammer because he'd twice been stopped by police and they'd given him a hard time, and he thought that when police next stopped him, 
they'd think he was a burglar and he would be less hassled than if he told them about the manslaughter. He claimed he also intended to commit a burglary with it, and with that in mind, he jumped over a fence and saw a man looking at him through a window. He did not refer to Brian Cherry by name. Brian claimed this man looked strange in some way, and he'd coaxed the man to open his front door. The man then called Brian a coon, and a struggle ensued. Brian said the man bit him, and that he then hit the man with his hammer and couldn't stop himself. He said the man kept saying, make me, which he interpreted as a request for sexual intercourse, which infuriated him, so he hit him again. Brian then spoke about having seen blue and claimed that on the streets there are bloods or crips, before saying he believed he'd hit the man at least six times and maybe more than ten, mainly on the head. He then said he saw some meat on the floor, which he started to eat. He could not remember whether he'd eaten part of the victim, but thought it was possible, claiming it could have been him, but it could have been pet food. Peter Bryan claimed that the man continued to say, make me, which continued to infuriate him, so he chopped off his arms and one leg with a Stanley knife, which he claimed he might have brought with him, or which he might have found in the house. He was uncertain whether he chopped off the limbs with the intention of eating them, but denied any similarity between what he'd done and the plot of the film Silence of the Lambs, or that he was inquisitive about the taste of human flesh. Brian suggested that if there was no food available, what he'd done would not have been considered bad. He'd admitted he'd not been in that type of situation, but claimed to have been very hungry saying that what he'd done was not as bad as sleeping with family members. Unreal, eh? A report on Brian from the Belmarsh consultant psychiatrist tells how While he was outwardly calm, he expressed frustration at the need to satisfy himself sexually with anyone and the desire to kill while being frightened of these thoughts. He appeared perplexed and frightened, he suggested that he wanted his front teeth to be removed because they were eating him like worms. He said he recognised someone who was outside his cell who he said had been following him since the beginning of time. Then he disengaged with us and went to the back of his cell. Despite the obvious clear signs here, it was almost two months before Brian was referred to Broadmoor Secure Hospital under the Mental Health Act, where he arrived on Thursday the 15th of April 2004. He was given medication here and placed directly into seclusion, where he remained until the 19th of April. Although not fully assessed, observations of him through this period decided that he presented no management difficulties and staff found him to be likeable and compliant so on the 19th of April, he was transferred to medium security Luton Ward, which he shared with 18 other patients. Medium security. This is despite the offence they'd been arrested for and charged with, and despite his disruptive behaviour at Belmarsh Prison, where he'd been variously described as unpredictable, presenting a grave risk to others, and even extremely dangerous. It makes you wonder... What have you got to do to go on a maximum security ward at Broadmoor, doesn't it? Or is that just reserved for big hitters who were at Broadmoor at the time, like Erskine or Sutcliffe or someone like that? So it's at this point in the tale of Peter Bryan that another character comes into the narrative, 
A 59-year-old patient named Richard Loudwell, who had a long history of mental illness. After many years suffering depression, Loudwell had first been informally admitted to hospital briefly for a depressive episode in March 1997, before being further admitted for a month between July and August 1999, when he was described as experiencing psychotic symptoms for the first time. He was arrested later the same month following an alleged indecent assault on an adult female member of his family, who also alleged that he'd had sexual contact with her when she was a child, but that no charges had been brought against him at that time. Bailed for these allegations, during the remainder of 1999, Loudwell was reported to have come to police attention several times for being abusive and threatening towards his mother on a number of occasions. In December 1999, Loudwell had subsequently pleaded guilty to current and historic charges of indecent assault on his female family member and was sentenced to two years probation. Whilst on this probation, Loudwell was regularly reviewed by mental health services and had remained under their care when his order expired. But following the expiration of this probation, Loudwell's mental state worsened. He began wandering around naked and when admitted to hospital was reported as acting inappropriately to female patients and to have persisted with this behaviour despite being requested to stop. He was even threatened with assault by other patients for this. There followed a catalogue of incidents concerning Loudwell over 2002. In October of that year, police received a report that he was sitting in a petrol station with a pornographic magazine with his trousers open and his penis exposed. Then in November, police received a further report that Loudwell had gone into a pharmacy near his home in Gillingham in Kent, naked from the waist up, and had discussed intimate sexual details with a pharmacy assistant before asking to take her photograph. Then on the 30th of November 2002, Loudwell was arrested for the assault and rape of a man in Canterbury and was taken to Canterbury Police Station where he was seen by the custody nurse. Loudwell described himself here as manic depressive and bisexual, indicating that he'd been in hospital for depression previously and stated that he had no control over his sexual urges. He admitted certain aspects of indecent assault but denied rape and was bailed. Two days later, on the 2nd of December 2002, Loudwell met an 82-year-old widow named Joan Smythe at Tesco's in Raynham and offered to help her home with the shopping, which she accepted. Once back at her home, Loudwell then raped and strangled Joan. The full extent of the crime has never been released, but an extract from the post-mortem report indicated that she had suffered multiple injuries but had died from a major compressive injury to the neck consistent with strangulation. There was evidence of multiple bruising and multiple cigarette burns to Joan Smythe's body and genitalia with further evidence of serious sexual assault. Again, there are no words, are there, eh? How absolutely horrific is that? Later that same night, Loudwell called an ambulance to Joan's home and when the ambulance crew arrived, they found him naked and Joan dead. Arrested and charged with her murder, Loudwell was remanded to Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh where he proved to be a disruptive and disturbed prisoner but a reviled one, hated immensely by fellow inmates for the horrific crime that he was remanded for. He remained at Belmarsh for more than a year 
before being transferred to Broadmoor Hospital on the 15th of January 2004. On the 22nd of April 2004, at Maidstone Crown Court, Loudwell pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Joan Smythe on the grounds of diminished responsibility. The Crown accepted this and the court ordered him subject to an interim hospital order under Section 38 of the Mental Health Act 1983, where he was returned to Broadmoor and back onto Luton Ward. Three days later, at about 6pm, there were nine nursing staff on duty in Luton Ward. Three of these were on a meal break in the ICA room, just off the ward day room, Three were observing the two corridors on which patients' own rooms were located and the remaining three were in the ward office with the door shut. Out of the 19 patients living on Luton Ward, all but two were in the main ward day room. The other two patients, Richard Loudwell and Peter Bryan, were in the ward dining room, a side room found off the main day room of the ward. Staff in the ICA room suddenly heard noises through the wall and so went to investigate. In the day room, Peter Bryan was noticed with blood on his hands and trainers, so was taken to the clinical room where he claimed he'd been banging the wall in frustration. A member of staff then went into the dining room and in the corner of the room found Richard Loudwell lying on the floor in a pool of blood with obviously serious head injuries. His face was covered in blood and there was a strangulation mark around his neck, but he was still alive. It was soon clear to staff, however, that his injuries were life-threatening and required urgent hospitalisation. He was immediately taken by ambulance to Frimley Park Hospital in Surrey. However, Loudwell was never to regain consciousness. 41 days later, on the 5th of June 2004, he died of his injuries, cause of death given as bronchopneumonia caused by severe brain injuries that he'd received in the attack. When confronted about the blood on his hands, and later it was noticed his trainers, Peter Bryan had freely admitted the attack on Loudwell, telling staff, I found him alone and used my pyjama string to strangle him, and when he was unconscious, I just took his head and banged it against the floor until I saw blood. Then I knew he was dead. I get these urges, you see. It's like a sort of chemical reaction going through my body. Do you know what I mean? I've had these urges towards him ever since I saw him. He's the bottom of the food chain. Old, haggard, he looks like he's had his innings. I've had these urges towards him for a long time and I was just waiting for my chance to get at him. I wanted to kill him and then eat him but I didn't have much time. If I did... I'd have tried to cook him and eat him. Asked if wanting to eat people was normal, Brian replied, Of course it's normal. Cannibalism is normal. It's been here for centuries. If I was on the street, I'd go for someone bigger, you know, for the challenge. I felt excited when I attacked him. I wanted to shag him while he was alive and also when he was dead. I wanted to cook him, but there was no time, nor was there access to cooking equipment. I briefly considered eating him raw, and I would have eaten him too if I hadn't been interrupted. He then went on to claim that the eating of body parts was part of a voodoo ritual that he carried out in order to transfer the life force or the power of his victims to himself, like some deranged Highlander describing the feeling a bit like being a quickening. 
before claiming that he wanted to kill more people. Brian claimed that he had at first considered killing his father because he was old and vulnerable, but had ultimately opted against it because by doing so would leave his mother alone. It was either kill both of them or neither of them. Now the only words I can come up with in response to this are fucking hell. Brian then named another Broadmoor patient as his next target and added, It's something like a ritual. I must be becoming a serial something. A psychological report on Brian following this described how he responded to controlling voices in his head. An extract from this report claims, Mr. Brian stated that a voice speaks to him. Pressed to elaborate on what the voice says, he responded, Wait and see. We spoke at length concerning the murders, of which he appeared proud and took great pleasure in describing to me in graphic detail. He offered no explanation as to the ferocity and violence involved in both offences, except to say that carving them up meant I owned their souls. When asked to explain this, he said, When they're taken apart, the spirits can't rest. He also said that by eating the brain of a victim, all of the knowledge, the feelings, anger and love that they possess would all pass to him. The report concludes that Brian demonstrates attributes of a severe personality disorder which in my opinion makes him an extreme danger to himself and others around him. Appearing at the Old Bailey on the 15th of March 2005, suited up and flanked by six prison officers in the dock, Peter Bryan admitted two counts of manslaughter in the cases of Brian Cherry and Richard Loudwell due to diminished responsibility. The Crown accepted not guilty pleas to murder charges because of the weight of psychiatric evidence suggesting Bryan was suffering a serious mental illness at the time. Aftab Jafferji QC, prosecuting, said... The case reveals a chilling insight into the mind of a man who has literally developed an appetite for killing. The circumstances of this defendant's offending, the inability of experts to detect when he's at his most dangerous, and his settled desire to cannibalise his victims all combine to make him uniquely dangerous. He is at his most deadly when he is able to present himself as entirely calm and settled. After hearing the full account of Brian's crimes, the court then heard how the mental health system had massively failed the public in the case, a catalogue of serious errors beginning with when Brian was released from Rampton after serving only eight years following the horrific murder of Nisha Sheth. Mr Jafferji told the court, The last two killings took place when the defendant was under the care of the mental health regime, which has manifestly failed to protect the public. The expert opinions or observations that allowed Brian to go free were to be overwhelmingly confounded in less than 24 hours. There was a significant failure within the mental health care regime in recognising the danger that the defendant presented. Even more startling is the fact that such a capacity for failure within this regime was to manifest itself again in just a few weeks' time. David Hetherington QC appearing for Brian agreed, adding, Brian should have been kept in conditions of the highest security. On Tuesday 15th of March 2005, 
Peter Bryan was jailed for life on both counts of manslaughter by Mr Justice Giles Forrester. He told Bryan that he had a duty to protect the public and that in his case, life would mean life. He addressed Bryan, You had the urge not only to kill, but also to eat the flesh of your victims. You killed on these last two occasions because it gave you a thrill and a feeling of power when you ate flesh. You experienced these feelings of power and invincibility, not only that, but you gained sexual excitement from the act of battering your victims to death. The earlier treatment at hospital did not cure your disease, and there is no reason to believe a hospital order now will do what it failed to achieve back in 1994. It's clear that you can appear calm and cooperative whilst harbouring bizarre psychotic beliefs. However, by the following January... Brian had appealed his whole life tariff and had it successfully overturned at the Court of Appeal, instead being told that he must serve a minimum of 15 years. Overturning the whole life tariff imposed upon Brian, Lord Chief Justice Lord Phillips claimed that Judge Forrester had failed to adequately reflect on Brian's mental illness at his original sentencing, adding, If he was cured of his mental illness and looked back in horror at his crimes, how long does justice demand that he be held in custody for crimes committed when ill? However, he also said that Brian's mental health would be kept under review and that it was unlikely that Brian would ever actually be released from a secure hospital and indeed he remains a patient in Broadmoor Hospital to this very day. Well, Lord Phillips, whilst researching the episode, I found two things that suggest to me that Peter Bryan is exactly where he belongs until he breathes his last, and in his case, you're certainly being a bit of an idealist here. The first is an extract from a report by clinical psychiatrist Dr. Martin Locke, who carried out a series of interviews with Peter Bryan following his life sentences. His report contains the following quote, Brian addressed me in interview. You look like a brainy chap and you're quite slim. I think I could take you. He is the most dangerous man I have ever assessed. The second thing I found is a claim that Brian reportedly revels in his status as a cannibal killer, christening himself with the moniker of Peckish Pete, and even that in Christmas 2004, before having his whole life tariff overturned, He'd even reportedly asked Broadmoor authorities for the traditional Christmas dinner to be set aside in his case. Brian wanted his turkey replaced with a dish of brains, believing eating human flesh would make him invincible. Sick joke at his own expense? Or would you consider letting him out next year? Because that's when his minimum recommended sentence served is up. Now there have been numerous inquiries and articles examining the case of Peter Bryan and in each the failings of the mental health authority in several areas are very apparent. Much criticism was made of how while living in the community Bryan was looked after by an inexperienced social worker and a psychiatrist who'd never worked with a convicted killer. A later inquiry found how the two professionals who were a supervising psychiatrist and social supervisor for this unusual and complicated patient were a general adult psychiatrist who never before had had responsibility for a patient who'd killed someone and a very inexperienced social worker who had no training in mental health and no experience as a social worker working with psychiatric patients 
let alone mentally disordered offenders. There were also failings in the decision to allow Brian to be in a position where he was allowed to self-medicate, but further, the reduction of the doses of medication Brian was receiving at the Riverside Hostel after he complained to staff, a reduction which could have been a factor in the eventual deterioration of his mental health. Also, the decision to allow Brian to leave the John Howard Centre 18 months short of the average time a patient would usually be resident there was criticised, and further, when allegations of an indecent assault were raised, it was suggested that he should have been moved immediately back to a secure hospital. Instead, he was only moved to an acute inpatient ward and was then further made an informal patient only weeks later. The same day that he was, as soon as he had his chance, he committed his second murder, which is surely one of the most horrific that we've ever featured on the show here, isn't it? Concerning Brian's third killing, criticism was made of the lack of alert supervision on Luton Ward that enabled Brian to kill Richard Loudwell. It also transpired that he'd not received any kind of assessment in the days he was on seclusion following his arrival at Broadmoor that may have indicated he was a serious risk. Now apologies were made after this, they always are after things like these aren't they? An inquiry upon inquiry are promised and carried out but do things ever change as a result? For any serious student of macabre true crime, this is an all too familiar story, perhaps not to the extent of frying someone's brains in clover, I mean, but rather people being released from secure custody, deemed cured or rehabilitated, only to commit worse atrocities once they're released. If you head back to an episode of the first series of the show, to the episode The Little Argument, and listen to the case of Glyn Dix, that's a perfect example that comes to the top of my mind. Now where Brian fell lucky was to appear before a mental health review tribunal, the right of any patient in secure hospitals. Now these tribunals are arguably a bit of a hangover from the days of the Victorian lunatic asylums, the meetings are strictly closed and the restricted patients that they're convened to discuss have no right of appeal. The decision to release Peter Bryan from Rampton was taken against Home Office advice, but these tribunals are empowered to override any such Home Office advice, with the Home Secretary only able to appeal on their findings on technical matters. So they did, and as a result, Bryan was able to take two more lives clearly in no way effectively cured. The Zito Trust, an independent mental health watchdog, believes that such an archaic system needs rehauling completely. Discussing the case of Peter Bryan, a spokesperson said, The tribunals don't allow representations from victims or families of victims and none of their decisions can be subject to appeal. This case is one of the most serious breakdowns of care to ever occur in Britain. It's another example of someone who's been into a high security hospital, is discharged with conditions and has gone on to kill. The mental health services have consistently failed to prevent homicides and serious attacks by people who were already known to have a history of violence. So if these representations had been allowed in the case of the tribunal that allowed Peter Bryan his first step in his freedom to kill again, I guarantee that first in the queue opposing any form of release for him would have been the family of Nisha Sheth, don't you think? Isn't this one of the most unbelievable cases that you could come across? 
it's one that highlights a catalogue of serious failings within the mental health services when you break it down. Lack of supervision in key areas where it's needed, inadequate community care and key workers who have little understanding of the needs of the patient that they're a key worker for. Contained within the episode show notes are a number of articles concerning the case that may interest you guys to read. And when researching the episode, I also came across a report that was written as a result of the inquiry into the death of Brian's third victim, Richard Loudwell. Now it is a bit lengthy, but it was a valuable source of information in creating this episode. A link to it is contained within the show notes, and if this case has intrigued you this week, then I recommend you guys having a read of it. It does make for informative reading and it highlights clear areas where supervision at Broadmoor fell down, allowing Brian opportunity to kill his victim and a lack of assessment of him upon arrival that, as we've said, may have highlighted he was a dangerous risk patient. As if his second murder didn't kind of suggest that already like, you know. Add these to the authoritative decisions that led Peter Bryan to be able to be at large to so horrifically kill Brian Cherry as he did, and it's very damning for the mental health authority. But to me, it also highlights another problem. And don't get me wrong, as I've said, there are some serious failings in decisions made concerning Peter Bryan here. That's as clear as day, and I am in no way defending them. But... If someone can be so manipulative or skilled at being able to keep such dark urges hidden if you like and can say all the right things and go through the motions long enough to fool professionals then how do you see that coming? It's not like you can believe every patient who over years who seemingly responds to treatment is actually pulling the wool over your eyes is it? Because if you did think that There's no such thing as a prognosis and you've gone back to the dark draconian days of the Victorian lunatic asylums as I said where people were shut away never to see the light of day again. And this highlights the problem with Peter Bryan. Bryan has clear mental health issues and prison is obviously not a suitable environment for him so where else is there for him to be? In a secure hospital. That's it isn't it? He has appealed, as we've said, his whole life tariff successfully, but it remains highly unlikely that Brian will ever be downgraded to any other sort of security except maximum. Equally highly unlikely is that he will ever be released to walk the streets again. Authorities have had their fingers burned with him once, and his actions just 10 days after being admitted to Broadmoor show just exactly how much of a danger he is. And if after eight years there was no way of reaching him, I mean, treatment clearly wasn't successful over that time, because as soon as he got chance, he went out and ate his mate, is Brian now a lost cause then, do you think? Or can he ever be reached? But until that time, if it comes, and scarier still, is he right now, under lock and key, still having thoughts about killing and eating people, which he could once again try to do at any moment? A real ticking time bomb. What do you guys think then of the case of Peter Bryan? I told you it was a bit of a gothic horror this one, didn't I, this week? Is the Mental Health Authority right to come in for the amount of flack that they've received in this case, do you think? Or is it more of a case that if Peter Bryan had these urges and managed to kill even in a secure hospital, would he have killed simply when his fuse burned out, perhaps long before Brian Cherry, regardless of where he was? And as anybody can develop mental health issues, anybody, 
and the propensity to do something like this is potentially in everybody, how do you prevent tragedies like this from happening? I look forward as ever to hear your thoughts and opinions based upon the episode. As usual, the thread is up there in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group for you guys, but I'm also available all over the show's social media, should you wish to discuss it there, or even if you just want to say hi and shoot the breeze, I love hearing from you all always. That's almost it from me for another week, but I shall be back next week for three in a row and a different case, and after the horror of this episode this week, one that I hope you'll find a bit more light-hearted. If you can't wait until then and you're after some enthusiast episodes that you haven't yet heard, then as a reminder, there is near a full series worth available to hear as a Patreon supporter of the show, alongside other tiers and offers, which are very reasonable and very easy to do. You know where the links are by now, I hope, or it's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site. I thank you guys very much for joining me here today, and until we next speak, I've been, I still am, and hopefully I still will be Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys good and safe times, and I shall catch you very soon. Thanks very much for joining me all, and goodbye for now.